people through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI Radio listener. Yes, Joey Watson here, and this is Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get to sit down with one person and talk through the stories from their life and the records which have defined them. Today, Clementine Ford. Clementine has had a life riddled with challenges, an unsettled childhood, mental health struggles, and the loss of a very close family member at an early age, amongst others. I'm glad to say she has overcome many of them and gone on to become one of Australia's leading feminist writers and critics. She is the author of two books, the leader of an impressive Twitter following and the mother of a son who you may be lucky enough to hear in the background of this interview. Clementine, when I was uh, working out that introduction, I went to a a recent article in the right-wing journal, The Spectator, uh, a favourite of us all, no doubt, uh, which gave you the title Feminist Cult Leader Exhibitionist. And I was a bit confused by that title. So before we get into some stories, I, I wanted to ask if you knew what a feminist cult leader exhibitionist is and if, in fact, you are one. Well, clearly it's something that <laughs> terrifies the people at The Spectator. Um, I'm sure they meant it to be disparaging, but I think that sounds pretty pretty good, actually. I might put that on my bio. That's Feminist, what I thought. cult leader, exhibitionist. That's why I was so confused by it. I think it's, it's obvious that, you know, people on the right who speak out against feminists and are terrified of women kind of colluding with each other and organising and talking to each other really try and, you know, it's classic sort of witch-shaming. Oh, these... these Feminism will cause women to turn to witchcraft and um, meet under the full moon and we can't trust it and it's all mystical and, I mean, yeah, that's exactly what it is. (laughs) Clementine, why did your family move around so much when you were a child? You know, like for a lot of families who move around, it was because of my parents' job, in particular my dad's job. He um, worked as an engineer in the mining and oil and... That just happened to be where we lived for a long time. Where, where was the location that you spent most of your childhood? In Oman, which is um, the Gulf of Oman. Is, is Oman is just a sort of a, a lesser-known country next to Dubai. Um, and it was beautiful. It was I, I loved growing up there. It was an amazing childhood. What was it like? What can you remember of it? Well, it was just like... It was just my life, you know? It was, there was, uh, it was very deserty. Um, you know, our house backed onto sand dunes and um, the beaches are beautiful there. And it was, it'd be, it'd be a lot different now. I'd be very interested to go back and see how much it's changed. But I just remember it as being very safe and um, beautiful. And, uh, you know, I feel a real affinity with uh, desert and sand and sea. And Did you go to school in Oman? Yeah, I went to an international school there. And what was like? What was that, what was that like? It was really interesting and I I really appreciate the experience because it was incredibly diverse culturally Um, and I think if I'd gone to school in Australia then I probably would have had a much more white upbringing um, or been surrounded by, you know, a majority of white people. So I I feel like I actually was exposed to a lot of diversity really early on which was... You know, everyone should be. It seemed stark once we moved from there to, you know, a seaside town in England 
and it suddenly became desperately white. Clementine, what is uh, catastrophic hypochondria? Oh, um, well, that's what I describe myself as having. Uh, so I've always been a hypochondriac and, you know, I've, I've part of my battle with mental illness is dealing with anxiety issues. And I've, I've always had that from as far back as I can remember, you know, um, as a child, it kind of manifested in me being terrified of illness all the time that I, I was convinced that I was going to get cancer. And yeah, I just had a lot of anxiety issues as a child that came out in this terrible fear of illness and, um, sort of losing my faculties and unfortunately for better or worse you know it's no no shade on my parents they just didn't really know how to deal with it so I think that they thought the best option would be to to minimize it and to tell me just to to treat it like it was a silly joke. What was the the ringing in your ears that you you started to experience a bit later in your childhood? Um, well, I've got tinnitus. So for anyone who has tinnitus, they'll be familiar with what constant ringing in your ear is, sounds like. You know, if you go out to a gig at night and you listen to a band play and, you know, you come back the next day and you, you or even, even when you leave or when you wake up the next day, you've got a bit of ringing in your ears. So that's what I have all the time. Um, and it started when I was 12 and for, I'm not sure what caused it. I've never spoken to a doctor about it. Um, but because I was so unused to it and, you know, coupled with this kind of terrible fear of things going wrong with me, I just fell into a deep, anxious hole for months. And um, now I'm at the point, you know, 30, 35 years later, 25 years later, where for a long time I've, I don't even notice it anymore. You just become used to these things. It's just background now. But um, Is this the entirety of the mental health struggle that you had in your late childhood and early teenage years? No, I mean, I I have experienced, I have issues with mental health, as most people do, and over the course of my life, I've experienced different times where I've been in funks or, you know, fallen into mental holes. Um, throughout my teenage years, I, I started to, some of this anxiety started to manifest in um, fear of, of outside forces having an influence on my life. So I went through a really, really weird sort of scary religious phase where I was terrified of, um, you know, if you raise children believing in hell then and they have anxieties, it stands to reason that some of them start being incredibly anxious about going to hell. So I had a lot of fear about the devil and um, hell and the devil might be working through other people to try and get to me and, you know, really stuff really that I needed some professional help with. But I also didn't talk to anyone about it because it was so scary. And girls especially are very good at covering up the trauma that they're going through. So no one knew that anything was wrong. And then uh, I sort of adjusted, I guess, and spent the rest of my teenage years just with a low-level anxiety. I wonder if from within this, particularly in your teenage years, if there was inklings of the feminist that you would become? Was that something that was already on your horizon? Not explicitly. I didn't have enough confidence or security in myself to put myself out there and express whatever inklings I might have had about gender and equality in in words. I, I didn't even have the language for it. Um, I didn't 
I knew that there were inequalities that existed and I knew that I certainly felt some of them, but I didn't know how to talk about it. And I didn't, I was terrified that uh, more than anything that boys wouldn't like me. And I don't even mean romantically, but that they would be, they wouldn't like what I had to say. And so then they would pick on me. Um, and I think a lot of girls feel that way. You know, the, the power that boys in a pack wield over them is strong, like it's intense. And none of us want to put ourselves in the firing, firing line. And the sad fact is that standing there and saying something as simple as I believe in equal rights for men and women often does put you in the firing line. Where were you in your life when you started to discover or identify publicly with those sorts of ideas? It wasn't until I started university that I really became able to articulate those thoughts. And a large part of that was that I actually developed a good group of girlfriends. You know, I hadn't really had a lot of close girlfriends at school, um, certainly not ones that I had these discussions with. And when I started university, I met girls who were interested in talking about these things. And so I found this solidarity there and a space where I didn't feel like I needed to justify what I was saying or explain it or temper it in any way. We could just sit there and talk about issues that we'd experienced. And again, I don't think that it's that's a hugely common thing for girls to find. Hopefully that's changing now, but I think that it takes it's a process for girls to get to that point where they feel comfortable. They feel they're even allowed to have those views. And to be able to say them to other girls and have it backed up and to know that they're being met with people who believe them and who also understand because they've got experiences like this too is a really powerful thing. So that was when it all started to change for me and I you know I started confidently using the word feminist and felt really exciting like I felt like I'd found a, a gang to be a part of. The first song you've chosen up the top here is uh, The Beach Boys, uh, God Only Knows. What's the story behind this one? I've always loved the Beach Boys and I never knew that much about Brian Wilson's own struggles with mental health until recently. I watched the movie Love and Mercy and Paul Dano is just so beautiful in it. And, you know, Brian Wilson just had such a sad life in so many ways and just wanted to make beautiful music. And um, all my life listening to the Beach Boys, it was the song God Only Knows that, that always really affected me deeply. But long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. If you should ever leave me, will life will still go on, believe me. Without you 
Beach Boys and God Only Knows, brought into FBI Radio today by feminist writer Clementine Ford. She is my guest on Out of the Box today. Clementine, what happened to your maternal grandmother during the Second World War? My maternal grandmother had a very traumatic upbringing. When she was 12, um, she, she was Lithuanian. And when she was, I think it was 12... Um, she's dead now, so I can't clarify with her, but uh, she basically was put in a concentration camp. Um, and I had originally thought it was a Russian one, but then it was recently clarified to me that it was a German concentration camp and she lost her whole family. And, um, you know, she also has mentioned, she never, she didn't talk too, in too great a detail about what happened to her in the war, but um, she indicated strongly that she suffered years of sexual violence in the camps, um, in the camp, sorry. And when she, when it was, when the war was over and she managed to, um, so the story that I heard was that German, the German, some of the German soldiers that some of the younger girls had not formed relationships with, but, but I suppose formed bonds to, in order to survive with had come to those women and these were you know it was a, it wasn't a camp like Auschwitz or um Belsen um but obviously still horrific um but some of them came these soldiers came to these girls and they said you know the war's over the allies are coming to liberate the camp on and there was a river that separated these two bits of land and they were on the russian side and they said we need to get to the ally side because the soldiers were thinking the Allies will go easier on us than the Russians will. Um, that's the story I've been told. So they escaped to the other side and then my mother, my grandmother ended up in a um, refugee camp in England. And she always said as well, by the way, that the Allies, when it came to the treatment of women, the Allies were no better than the Germans. Um, so she had a re- very, really, really traumatising, damaging adolescence. She met my grandfather, who was uh, Guyanese, and he had been fighting in the RAAF. And she met him in this this refugee camp, and he said, "I want to marry you." And he took her took her back to Guyana. Um, what happened to him? Well, he he was an alcoholic, and so so basically, what happened was my grandfather disappeared. My grandmother, who had developed no skills and had been deeply traumatized by men for almost her entire life, but who, who did not know how to survive without them and being taken care of by them, quickly remarried. And she met a, a British man who was working in the area and he said to her, I want to take you back to England with me and marry you. Um, she had four children. She had two daughters and two boys. And he said, but I don't want to take the boys with me, only the girls. And so my grandmother chose to do that and she left her two sons in Guyana with... Um, 
her mo- her former mother-in-law. These are your uncles. My uncles, yeah, they were three and four at the time. Do we know what happened to them? No. Um, and my mum was told, you know, we're going to send for Michael and Lawrence later, and she said, you know, they they went to England by boat, and. She said that, you know, she asked every day, when are Michael and Lawrence coming? And one day my grandmother just took out a belt and beat her and said, never ask me that again. And so she, my mother never saw her brothers again. And we don't, we've sort of tried to find them, but we don't know what's happened to them. Their names are, would be, well, at the time their names were Michael and Lawrence Gavaya. Um, but who knows? They could have ended up in an orphanage. They could have ended up with their names changed. They could be dead for, for all we know. And... And so my mum my, my suffered the loss of her, you know, half of her... F- and she was the eldest and she loved her brothers and took care of them. And so she suffered the loss of these two children and was never able... was never allowed to grieve for it or given any answers about it. Is that story indicative of the sort of upbringing that your mother had? Yeah. Um, you know, she... When they moved to England, she said that she turned up with a... You know, she was half Guyanese and she turned up with a thick... West Indian accent and, you know, dealt with a lot of racism there and, you know, name calling. And she said that she responded by developing the kind of English accent that could cut glass. So she really lost a lot of her culture because of, you know, entrenched racism and needing to fit in and needing to kind of hide it all. Um, Lost her brothers, her her mother refused to apologise for it, would never speak to her about it. And then when my my mum was really, really smart. And when she was 13, she'd, um, she'd been accepted into, you know, the sort of smart stream at, in the schools. And this was would have been 1959. No, no, early 1960s, 1962, 1963. And so she was due to start at this, you know, due to start high, uh, uh, secondary education in a good school. And my grandmother said, no, you're not going to school. Well, you're going to took her out of school and forced her to go to work, and even at this point in England, the labour laws didn't allow for a 13 year old to work. The cha- the laws had changed by then, so my grandmother forced her to lie, and my mother talked about how humiliating it was, knowing that she was not you know that she was not telling the truth, and also that she was she'd had this opportunity for an education taken away from her. In your memory of your childhood, did your mother struggle with mental illness? Definitely, yeah. How did that manifest to you? Well, she had clinical depression, as you can imagine why. Um, And, you know, I think that probably from the little I know about it, I think she probably suffered some form of complex PTSD as well because she'd, she'd suffered so much loss and, like I said, had no avenue to talk about it or kind of even understand it. Her mother was cold and abusive um she didn't have a father you know after after my you know the really ironic thing is that after my grandmother remarried this man and left her two sons behind and moved to England he was the second of five husbands so it didn't even last and there were no constant parental figures in my mother's life and she and you know she ended up a single mum at the age of 28 and she met my dad when my sister was two years old. And, um, you know, she really had a tough time. And she had all this potential that, you know, she was completely self-taught. She was a voracious reader. She knew so much about politics and history. 
but she was a woman who was totally underestimated. Do you have positive memories of your relationship with your mother? Absolutely. I love my mum and I, I, the older I get and the more I understand about motherhood and the kind of experience I have now of, of having become a mother and the experience I have of, of being a feminist and someone who, who respects and mourns the opportunities that have been stolen from women throughout history, I, I really have a lot of grief for what it is that she missed out on, you know. She had, I mean, don't get me wrong, she had a good life and she loved her children and she loved her husband, but she could have been something amazing and she just never had that opportunity. Clementine, what happened to your mother just before her 58th birthday? When I was uh, 25, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. So she was 56 or 57. And she'd, you know, she'd sort of gone a, a sickly shade of yellow and was jaundiced. And we, we thought she'd gotten hepatitis from, you know, eating some bad oysters or something like that. How bourgeois. <laughs> um, because, of course, you don't think, oh, it's cancer. And then, yes, it did, in fact, turn out to be cancer. And initially the doctors thought that they could operate on it, that it had been caught early enough. And when they went in to do the surgery, it was I remember it was my parents' wedding anniversary, and they went in to do the surgery and opened her up and, and just found like a wasteland of tumours <laughs> inside. So it had started in her liver and her bile duct, but it was all spread through her pancreas and stomach. And so they sewed her back up and they said, you know, they said to my dad, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. And it was just a matter of waiting and trying to, you know, make sure that the, the last few months of her life would be well spent. Can you tell me about Mother's Day that year? Um, so the following, so she was diagnosed in October and she died eight months later. And we knew that it was terminal and we knew that <coughs> she, we knew that she would be saying goodbye to us. Um, and Mother's Day was in early May. We went home for dinner to celebrate Mother's Day and she had recently been told that... So, so over the course of these eight months, her, basically her digestive system stopped working because of the cancer. Um, and she'd been told that the, the only real solution at this point was to have a gastric bypass and that this would buy maybe four or five extra months. And initially that's what she decided to do and so we, th we thought that was the planning. You know, when someone you love is dying, you want to do everything you can. I can understand why snake oil salespeople do so well because you want to try everything you can. And if someone puts a powder in your hand and says, this cured my aunt's tumour and it was the size of a football, and um, then you do it. So she had agreed to do the gastric bypass and we, went, we were invited to come home for Mother's Day and we sat there and my dad said, oh, um, we've got something to tell you. And he did all the talking. And I, I was really angry about that at the time. But then later on, I realized that it was because she couldn't, she couldn't tell us herself. And he said she's decided against the surgery. And so what that means is that um, she's going to die. And we've invited you all to come here tonight to say goodbye to her. And when you leave, we want you to go and not come back. And that was the way that they chose to do it. I've told that story to a few people and they can't understand why someone would choose that. But I understand. 
I think that it was very difficult for her to make that choice to willingly approach death and to say goodbye to her children and her husband. And she knew that surgery would only prolong her life by a little bit and prolong the inevitable. And she didn't want to be in pain and she didn't want to be, you know, eating food through a tube. Um, She was just, she knew it was coming and I think she was ready to meet it on her own terms. But to have her children continue to to visit her maybe would have made that a lot more difficult for her. So she needed us to say goodbye and go so that she could do what she needed to do. What can we play now, Clementine? Um, this next one is from one of my favourite musicians of all time. Um, it's Claire Bowditch and it's her song, The Thing About Grief. And anyone who's mourned a loved one, these words and these lyrics will speak to you and speak, speak to that experience.
Everything About Grief, a song by Australian singer-songwriter Claire Bowditch and chosen by Clementine Ford. She is my guest on Out of the Box today. Clementine, how did your parents first teach you about sex? (laughs) Um, Well... My family was very much in favour of using proper words for for proper things. So we never, our body parts were never referred to as, you know, sort of silly euphemisms. You know, it was always penis and vagina. Um, And my mum, I remember, I was the youngest of three, I am the youngest of three children. And my mum sat us down one night. I was five, five years old, I think. And I I don't know that they'd intended to do it, but the topic came up in conversation how babies were made and so she got this big piece of paper out and she drew all of these very scientific diagrams and and you know talked about the sperm and how the sperm leaves the penis and makes its way up through the vagina and it meets the egg and it was all very clinical um and I was sort of listening on thinking oh this is a pretty interesting lesson and for years I thought oh I know what sex is I know all about sex my my mother taught me about it and of course I knew nothing about sex at all (laughs) Um, so that's how I was taught about it. So like almost all of my generation of Australian women, I learned about sex through Dolly Doctor. Um, but you still didn't know anything about it, you know. I thought I knew, but I had no idea. You've uh, written a bit about discovering masturbation um, and you were going through a fairly intense religious phase at the time. Can yeah. I, can I ask about that? Sure. So this could, it coincided with what I was talking about earlier about, you know, the sort of terrifying descent into religious obsession um, which was mercifully brief um, but I you know I discovered masturbation when I was 12 quite by accident as most of us do I knew that it this thing that I did felt good but I had no idea what the purpose of it was um, until one day the purpose revealed itself and I was pretty shocked actually and quite scared at the time I thought I was you know I was hypochondriac I thought I was having a stroke um, and I thought this terrible thing has happened to me because I've been bad. I've been touching myself and that's bad. And then I, I resolved I would never do it again because I figured out, okay, well, it's, I haven't had a stroke, but I thought, but I, I better not tempt fate. And I, and I decided that I was going to stop doing it because I didn't want anything bad to happen to me. Because no one, you know, my mum had done all the di- diagrams, but no one had talked to me about masturbation. Um you know, or exploring your own body or whatever. Um, and I I also prayed to God for forgiveness because I thought it was wrong. It was a sin to touch myself. And I should say as well that my parents weren't religious. So I didn't, I don't know where I picked up this idea that it was a sin, but I, I guess I watched a lot of movies. Um, and I, I used to pray to God every time, you know, I kept doing it furiously thankfully. And every time I did it, I would pray afterwards. I said, sorry, sorry, God, this is definitely the last time. And because I've got, as I said, I've got, you know, OCD, I would also pray in like, um, uh, I, I, my OCD comes out in patterns, you know, pattern behavior. Um, I would pray in certain orders and I would say the Hail Mary and the Our Father, and I would have to do it a certain number of times and in a certain pattern. And so I would masturbate and then I would pray to God and I would do the, the order and I'd go and wash my hands 10 times in a particular way. And uh, I just couldn't stop doing it, though. Once I got over the religious side of things, I thought, it's probably not something to feel bad about, is it? You know, and a lot of that is, is 
steeped in the shame that girls feel about touching themselves and about having a, a relationship with their body that is theirs alone, that doesn't that isn't defined by the way other people look at them and the way that men look at them in particular. Was your queer identity something that you had difficulty coming to terms with? Yeah, I think so. I felt I definitely didn't talk to anyone about the feelings that I had to girls and the you know, the sexual fantasies that I had about women. Um, cause I thought that was wrong and, um, and I didn't think it was a sin. I just think, you know, like a lot of people who kind of grew up in homophobic, in more homophobic times, of course it's still homophobic now, but I think perhaps there's a, a more welcoming space for young queer kids. Um, I just felt like it marked me as different and I didn't want to be different. I didn't want there to be something wrong with me, um, I didn't want people to think that I was, you know, sick in some way. Um, so I just kept it really, really secret until uni. Uni uh, liberates all. <laughs> can you tell me about your first girlfriend? Um, yeah, my well, I met her when I was 21 and she was a friend of my housemates. And she, I was living in Adelaide at the time and she came from Melbourne and she'd come to visit for the weekend. And I don't know, it's, you sort of, you have the, you hear people talk about these kind of intense meetings. Um, and I met her, I came over for dinner. I don't know, so I'd recently moved out of this house and I came over for dinner and I walked out the back where she was standing out there having a cigarette. And it honestly, it sounds like a total cliche, but I met her and I just knew that there was something amazing was going to happen. And she always told me afterwards, because I'd come in kind of like yelling out hello through the kitchen, and she said, you know, I heard your voice before I saw saw your face, and I, and she thought something was going to happen. And it, and it did that night, you know. That was the first time I'd ever slept with a woman. And it just felt totally natural and right and inevitable. It was the... It was, the first time I'd ever felt the inevitability of love. Clementine, what can we play in tribute to this <laughs> part of your love life? Um, so this is a song by Lior called This Old Love and it was something that she and I used to listen to together or it sort of like kind of formed the backdrop of our relationship which really, um, as I said, you know, felt inevitable, like felt like meeting a soulmate. And she was the first person who made me realise that soulmates, that we can have numerous soulmates throughout our life and that they sometimes are romantic and sometimes not romantic or begin as romance and then end up as something different. And, you know, she and I are still friends today. It's Our relationship has changed, obviously. We've both got children, um, different partners. and But I still always think of her when I hear this song. Yes, yeah, we're moving on, looking for direction Mmm, we've covered much ground Thinking back to innocence, I can no longer connect I don't have a heart left to throw around Oh, and time moves on like a train That disappears into the night sky Yeah, I 
I still get a sad feeling inside to see the red tail lights wave goodbye. But we'll grow old together. We'll grow old together. And this love will never. This old love will never die. Money slips into your hands and then slips out like it was sand. And there's shoes that you can never seem to fill. I've chased so much and lost my way. Maybe a face for every day that so casually slipped me by. Oh, and time moves on like a train that disappears into the night sky. Yeah, I still get a sad feeling inside. To see the red tail lights wave goodbye, but we'll grow old together. We'll grow old together, and this love will never, this old love will never die. Morning comes, sometimes with a smile, sometimes with a frown. So I never want to worry if you're gonna stay around. So let's grow old together. We'll grow old together, and this love will never, this old love will never die. Yeah, we're moving on, moving right along. That chart tune, "This Old Love," now a two thousands folk classic by Australian Israeli singer songwriter Lior. It today belongs to the record collection of feminist writer Clementine Ford. You might hear her son <laughs> snoring quietly in the background. Fittingly, um, he is the topic of the next part of this interview. Clementine, what was the difference between the, the sort of anxiety that you'd experienced earlier in your life and the sort of anxiety associated with your pregnancy? There were a lot of similarities, actually. So I went... Um, I, I became pregnant when I was 35. It was a wanted baby. I'd had two abortions in my 20s and I'm grateful that I was able to make that decision because uh, now I have the baby that I wanted. Um, so I planned I planned the pregnancy and I was excited about it and I really enjoyed the first 23 weeks uh, even though I was sick all the time. I was really excited about tracking, you know, how the baby was growing and so on. And then when I was 24 weeks pregnant, 23, 24 weeks pregnant, I went to sleep one night and as I was lying in bed, I suddenly thought to myself, what if I don't... Well, my friend had a baby that was that is nine months older than my son and I loved him, you know, I adored him. And I suddenly, I went to bed and I thought, what if I don't like my baby as much as I like Freddie? Um, which, of course, I... As soon as my son was born, I care nothing for any other child. <laughs> um, 
But I guess that, I mean, that was just a way of kind of expressing the fear of approaching motherhood. And I had a sort of a little panic about it, like a little panic attack where I, I guess I was kind of met with the realisation that there was no, that this was happening. That, you know, the previous 23 weeks I'd been living in this sort of like beautiful fantasy land of envisaging, oh, I'm going to become a mum and I've got this baby coming. But now I was really at the point where I, it was definitely happening happening, and I couldn't do anything about it. And there was no backing out. I'm, I'm interested in the comparison you make. Um, I, uh, I'm very close with my sister who has had three little kids in, in recent years. And uh, you talk about how uh, the way society idealizes pregnancy or what society says um, pregnancy should be for a woman compared to the reality is very mm. different. Um, and it's not something I've seen discussed that much. Can you kind mm. of go through that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that women's bodies are controlled in in lots of different ways, and you know, just acknowledge it's it's not always just women who get pregnant. Obviously, trans people and non-binary people can become pregnant too. But for the purposes of this conversation, I'll talk about the policing of women's bodies. Um, that women are expected to become mothers, punished if we don't, punished if we do, and it's all it all comes back to to control. And the idea of the beatific mother, you know, the wonderful state of pregnancy and motherhood that we should be so grateful for the blooming life inside of us and so thankful because, you know, some people can't get pregnant so you have to project happiness even if you're not feeling it. And what's happening is wonderful and there's actually no, you know, real confronting of what pregnancy does to a woman's body, what childbirth does to a woman's body, the the reality of birth trauma, um irreversible damage in some cases where you know permanent irreversible pelvic prolapse can occur like childbirth is no joke pregnancy is no joke um and also the mental strain of it you know whether or not you have prenatal anxiety or postnatal anxiety or depression is huge you know it's something like one in one in seven women i think will experience postnatal depression or one in four maybe even and one in ten will experience pre or postnatal anxiety um and I suddenly was hit by this terrible wall of anxiety about the fact that I there was something in my body and I couldn't get it out and I knew that in 16 weeks which is not really that long in the grand scheme of things, but it is long if you're trapped inside your own head and you're sort of, um, I I really don't like to fly because once you're on the plane and the doors shut and you're in the air, you can't get off the plane. You know, you have no control over the situation. And that's what being, when I had this panic attack at 23 weeks pregnant, that's what the rest of the pregnancy felt like to me. Like I was on a, a 16 week long plane ride that I couldn't get off. And it was really terrifying. You know, I had, I had a lot of, awful thoughts I had I became sort of vaguely suicidal in some ways in the suicidal ideation that you know comes when you you don't want to die but you can't see any other way out of what you're feeling Mm -hmm. um and I really suffered a lot you know and I and I felt like I couldn't talk about it to my doctors because they I tried to talk about it to a doctor and um you know I said to her I don't I've never taken medication for my anxiety but I think this is really bad and I would be open to that 
And she she responded by saying, oh, no, you can't take medication, you're pregnant. Like That was just the answer, which is not true. You can take medication if you're pregnant. You just have to be monitored. And it is much better to have a medicated, alive pregnant woman than someone who is in a, in a you know really struggling and makes a rash decision. Mm. You know, as as the pregnancy kind of got more towards more into the third trimester, it it eased a little bit because I could see that the end was in sight. But also that, you know, your body changes, the baby gets big enough that it can't move around quite as vigorously as it does in the second trimester. So it felt less uh, less present, I suppose. Um, but I, yeah, really, I suffered a lot and I know a lot of women do suffer mm. through their pregnancies. And prenatal anxiety and depression is far less diagnosed than postnatal anxiety and depression because fewer people know about it. And they also, as you said, feel like they need to be reflecting this kind of like beautiful state of pregnancy hmm. as opposed to saying, I um, I hate every second of this and I am scared I'm going to hurt myself. From prenatal anxiety to some 60s soul music, can you introduce <laughs> us to our next track? Sure. So one of the things that I tried to do while I was going through this horrible experience was use music to um, focus and as an act of mindfulness and also to connect with my baby because I... I felt very disconnected from him during this period. Um, And I used to listen to this song in the shower and cry and focus on the end, uh, view it as a conversation between me and my unborn child. And um, it's Ain't No Mountain High Enough, which is sort of obvious, you know, like that there's no mountain high enough, no river wide enough that will keep me from getting to you. So I've really tried to focus on that, that I'm, this is a journey that we're on. And, and eventually I will find you and I will pull you into the earth, pull you into the world, and we will be together. Don't have to worry. Oh. 
Soul Music on FBI Radio, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, courtesy of activist, writer, feminist Clementine Ford. She is my guest on Out of the Box today. Clementine, how did you react when you found out that you were having a son? (laughs) Um, I was quite shocked because I thought that my – I just assumed that I was going to have a girl. And, you know, maybe he is a girl and I just don't know yet. But um, I just assumed that I was so strongly focused on having a daughter. And part of that was, I guess, because I understood, I felt like I understood girls. I thought I've got no idea how to raise a boy. But I also had lost my mum and I really wanted to have a mother-daughter relationship again. Um, And so when when my partner and I decided to find out the sex and... Mainly because he wanted to. I didn't really care that much about it, but um, he wanted to. And so we had the, the sonographer write it down on a piece of paper because he couldn't come to the, the screening with me. And he opened the envelope and he, he had been saying to me, you're going to have it's, – it's going to say boy. It's going to say boy, you know, just prepare yourself because I know you think that you're going to have a girl, but it's going to be a boy. Um, and – he opened it up and he said, it's a boy. And I I was truly shocked. But it took about 30 minutes before I just decided I couldn't have any, I couldn't have any complicated feelings about it, you know. And now I just had to set myself to figuring out what I could do to help raise a boy in a really healthy, positive way. I'm interested in that. How, how does your feminism inform the sort of mother that you are? Well, I am much more emotionally cognizant now of the impact that patriarchy has on men and the harm that patriarchy causes to to men and in its socialization of boys, the things that it instructs them to excise from themselves from themselves. Um, I knew those things before, but in a theoretical way and i was and I was more interested and concerned about the impact that that had on girls and women. And, of course, I'm still concerned about that. But now because I have this small human who I need to help navigate the world and protect him from protect him from that brutality, um, I'm really invested in maintaining for him his softness, his kindness, in giving him the kind of self-esteem that isn't to do with his achievements or, you know, his, his sort of to the manner born entitlement to rule but self-esteem that comes from, you know, doing having a strong moral code and being confident enough to stand up against, you know, the pack, to know not right from wrong and to value himself and to value the things inside him that the world may try and tell him are shameful. If we look at gender relations in Australia today, Clementine, there are obviously a a host of issues, um, many of which you write about, many of which I'm sure you will write about in the future. Domestic violence, sexual assault, workplace, inequality. Where do we begin to create a better world? I mean, it's got to be a joint project. You know, people have to first acknowledge and admit that there's a problem. And the the reality is that a lot of people still refuse to do that. They're very confronted by the idea that we could change the way that men and women relate to each other and that men might particularly, they're particularly confronted by the idea that men 
might actually have to change something about their own behaviour and their own participation in society if true gender equality is to be achieved. People who think that women's empowerment can truly occur with no impact on men's lives whatsoever are fooling themselves. I had um, Eva Cox on the show a couple of weeks ago, um, maybe the prototypical 70s feminist. And it, it seemed when we were talking about the 70s as the women's movement started to get underway in Australia, there seemed like there was a moment of organising where things just started to happen really rapidly. And I mean, I guess the, the, how lasting some of that change was mm. is, is open to question. But when you look around now, it, 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 do you see, is there reason to be hopeful? I think so. It's really easy to overlook that for a lot of people, they don't have these conversations. They don't think that there's an issue with gender inequality. If they do talk about it, it's in a way that's, oh, well, bloody women are just trying to get more, you know. Oh, just, I don't agree with the superiority of it, that kind of thing. Um, but I, don't, I think it's, we have cause to be hopeful because you can't change society overnight. And, you know, I said to, I talked to a young 15-year-old girl yesterday who said to me, how do I, how do I educate the boys at my school about these issues? How do I make them see that this is real? And I said to her, I'm sorry, but you can't. Um, You will waste so much energy trying to convince them of something that you know to be real if they are determined not to see it and not to believe it. And it's just going to break your heart to keep trying over and over again and have them let you know how, how unimportant they think you are. Where you can make a difference is by going and speaking to all of the girls in your year or in your environment and talking to them about gender equality and women's rights because they have more of an immediate kind of frame of reference for it and then you can build a group you can build a movement you know you don't have to deal with people your your movement doesn't have to begin by trying to convince those determined to oppose it you know your, your movement builds by drawing in allies and eventually becoming so big that the people opposite you either have no choice but to listen to what you have to say or have no power against you. On that decidedly political <laughs> note, let's have a non-political end to the show. What are you going to play us out with, Clementine? Uh, I'm going to play this uh, the song Ghost Town by First Aid Kit. Um, I first saw First Aid Kit perform live at Golden Plains uh, seven years ago and it was where I met my partner who is the father of my son and he's a photographer and he was he was you know had his his official photographer's high-vis vest on and he was taking photos of the band and it was sunset at Meredith and it was beautiful and I just I looked at him and I just thought I'm gonna Facebook message that boy when I get home (laughs) um and I had been I met him through friends we'd been camping in the same place and he just made me laugh and I, I always associate first aid kit with sunset love and you know the beautiful the beautiful prospect of possibility on that i'd like to say an enormous thank you to my producers brie and nicole 
and Clementine Ford. Thank you so much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this so, so much. It's so nice to have in-depth conversations about this kind of thing. Come back.
Podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com/podcasts.